0: We come this morning to the second half of Acts in chapter 4, and so if you have a Bible, you can begin opening to the New Testament book of Acts and head there. And in just a moment, we'll be reading from verses 23 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 37. Uh, If you are just joining us this morning, we have been going through the book of Acts in a series that I've entitled, The Power to Change the World, It is very much the stories of the first generation uh, of Christians in the New Testament who, like us, have been saved by God's amazing grace, have been brought from death to resurrection life, and have now been filled with the power of the promised Holy Spirit. And the the filling and the empowerment lends itself to boldly sharing the good news of the gospel with their words and very much with their actions and their lives. As we saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, just two weeks ago, and this happens again in our own day as well, you understand that when believers begin to live out the gospel boldly with their words and with their actions, there will inevitably be from this world, from one faction or another, particularly from those in authority, says the scripture, there will be pushback. Stop talking about Jesus was the word from the powers that be, as we saw two weeks ago. Those social powers, political powers, self-righteous powers, secular and sacred powers that all began to literally threaten the apostles, even as many will do to believers this very day. But as we began to see in the beginning of this chapter, we, like them, are called to respond to persecution with joy enduring man's attacks for the sake of the good news of the gospel, knowing that the gospel changed lives, not just in this moment, but that the gospel changes lives eternally. And so there is nothing that they can do that we will say, I will be silent. I will live out and share no more the gospel. This morning, as we take on the second half of Acts 4, what we're going to see is the aftermath of what was the very first persecution in the New Testament church. Remember that Peter and those with him were attacked, threatened, and put in prison overnight because they healed a man who was lame and because they were speaking and evangelizing those in the city. And it began to show us, as we will see further today, what does it mean for us as believers today to follow in the footsteps of Christ and of these early believers? What Luke, who is the author, the human author of Acts, is going to do here in this portion of Scripture is to give us a snapshot. What does it mean to be the church today? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? And what we'll see here in this passage is really two main ideas that stand out. The Scripture is going to show us by application what it means for believers today to worship Jesus and what it means for us to continue in the work of Jesus, to worship and to work. So let's together hear God's word this morning, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, that is from prison, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. They're quoting Psalm chapter 2 there, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everybody is gathered against Christ. Verse 28, "'To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus.'" And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is good, that it is true, that it is inerrant, that it is life-giving. And Father, I pray for your people as we gather that you might fill us afresh with boldness, with the realization of the new life that we have in Christ. And Father, I pray for any who here in this room or maybe online or maybe even in the weeks to come, Lord, that as they hear the good news of the gospel that they might respond in saving and life-changing faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Two ways this morning to joyfully live following Christ in hard times. Number one, we see this in verses 23 through 31 in particular. Join in the worship of Jesus. Join in the worship of Jesus. Verses 23 through 31, just so we're clear, it is not an exhaustive instruction manual of every last thing that we ought to do in a Sunday morning worship service, but what it is doing is it is challenging us that first and foremost in our lives, regardless of circumstances, that we might begin life and approach every aspect of life with worship to our Savior, King and so, what I want to tease out here are really four sort of subpoints of what we see going on in the lives of these believers as they handle difficult times by responding in worship to King Jesus. And so the first of them, you can go point one, you could go letter A, however you prefer, but the first of them is this: our response, our response to persecution is prayer and praise. Our response to persecution is prayer and praise praise. And you can just officially call me a baptist because for the re- remainder of this sermon I'm going to do some incredible alliteration here, the rhyming of those initial consonant sounds. Are you impressed already? 3 Ps, one sentence, it's pretty good. In response to persecution, believers gathered together and the Bible says that they lifted their voices to God. How do you respond when life falls apart? how do you personally respond when your best laid plans that you have thought through and prepared crumble in your hands? Or how do you respond when you try to share your faith with somebody and it does not go well? I shouldn't have said that. I meant to say this. They don't want to hear. Or when your ministry is responded to with a hard-heartedness that you cannot seem to break through. Or physically speaking, how do you respond when you get that diagnosis of cancer? How do you respond when you lose someone that you love, when you are smacked in the face with the reality that all of us must deal with sin and brokenness in this life? Well, the response here of this first generation of Christians to persecution was to essentially hold an unscheduled worship service. They get threats. They get prison time, they get beatings and their response, not just here, but you will see throughout Acts. When difficult things happen, they go, we are going to have a church service here right now. We're going to worship King Jesus. And they didn't have time to break out the mics. They just went to worship. What if our heart level response, not just in the ups, but in the inevitable downs of this earthly life, was to respond in worship? Worship to King Jesus. We go back to the very beginning, uh, the book of Job. Job is a man who probably suffered more than any other person, at least, that we could read about. As a believer, he suffered. And in Job 13, 15, this profoundly powerful and yet simple verse, Job, lifting his voice to God, says this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Why? Seems very paradoxical, doesn't it? Why would he respond in such a way? Because he hoped in a coming Messiah. He looked forward to a promised day. We look back on a promised day. The very end of Scripture, the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John after a lifetime of persecution. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos when he writes the book of Revelation, and he writes this, and and maybe this is what we should hold on to when we hit those difficult moments. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, the reason for the name of our church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is John speaking. And and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. But there's more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, King Jesus says, "Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Where do you place your hope? When persecution or troubles come, where do you place your hope? Is it in your politics? It's not going to work out. Is it in your 401K? It's not going to come through. Is it in your career ambitions? Maybe it's through your younger generation, your kids' sports ability or your kids' musical ability. That's where I'm placing my hope. Some of us, it's just our Netflix subscription. When's that new show coming out? My hope. What a waste. When persecution came, they praised and they prayed. Secondly, though, in this realm of worshiping Jesus, our response, here we go, alliteration, you ready for this? Our response to suffering is to find comfort in God's sovereignty. Our response to suffering is to find comfort in God's sovereignty. Not my idea, right? Scripture is giving us exactly this. Their prayer begins with declaring to God that he is sovereign Lord, Sovereign is not necessarily a word that we use in our everyday vocabulary. Sovereign means God is in total, absolute control over some things. No, over everything. Wait, so you mean there's some things that God can control and there's other things that he's just sitting back hoping that it works out or maybe things come together? No, no, no. God is in control. And they find that in their suffering, a cause of comfort is the fact that God is in control. Again, they may beat us, they may put us in jail, but God is still good, and He is still in control of all things. Guys, we have an amazing promise, a promise that when Peter is experiencing the moments here of Acts chapter 4, it hadn't even been written in Scripture yet, but the promise was nevertheless true. Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us this astounding promise that summarizes what we're getting here in Acts chapter 4. Romans 8, 28 to 31. Read the whole chapter today, but capture what's going on here in verses 28 through 31. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? All things. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The moment of your salvation is that J word, justified. God is in control, and He will use even the worst circumstances in your life for good If you are in Christ, what a promise. And so the believers here literally pray to God, your hand and your plan had predestined this to take place. Wait, God predestined them to go to jail for talking about Jesus? Yes, how do I know? That's what it just said. Well, how do we work through this? Well, think about it this way. God has already used the greatest injustice of all time for your good. When Jesus hung on the cross, He had committed zero sins. He was put on the cross for my sins, He was murdered, having done absolutely nothing wrong. The accusations that the Jews and that the Romans and Pontius Pilate held against them, they held no water. He was innocent, and yet he went to the cross. The Son of God died for sins he didn't commit. It is the greatest injustice of all time, and yet God predestined that moment to take place. There's no moment where God's going, oh, man, sin. I didn't see that coming. Adam and Eve, oh, No, you weren't the fruit. Come on, man. God knew. God knows. And God is using all of it for our good. So if he can handle the injustice of Christ on the cross, he can handle your worst moments. He can use your suffering for good. Third, under worship, our response to worry is to look to the Word. Our response to worry, questions, doubt, confusion, our response to worry is to look to the Word. And in the Word, we get understanding. We get this explicitly in verses 25 through 27. The believers here understand their situation and how they should respond by reading the Bible, wait, what? The believers understood what they should do in that moment, that contemporary moment, by reading Psalm chapter 2, which had been written a thousand years earlier. What they are doing is quoting a portion of Psalm chapter 2 written by King David. David. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm, among other things. It promised within its content that there would one day be a Messiah who would be the Savior, and now they understand the Old Testament to be speaking about King Jesus. The psalm also, if you go back and read it, I highly encourage you to, it gives us another type of a snapshot. It gives us a snapshot of the ugliness and the wickedness of sin. In particular, it highlights, again, kings and those in authority for their wickedness and rebellion of saying, I don't want God as my king. But that mentality is very much the root of sin in all people. It is not just those kings or those people over there who struggle with sin. It is these people. It is me. It is us. Because the root of sin in all of us is that mentality that says, I don't want you, God, as king. I will be my own authority. The root of sin is saying, I don't want Jesus to tell me what to do. The foundation of gospel living is saying, I submit myself to your word by your grace. And so we understand today, by reading the scripture written several thousand years ago, up to nearly a thousand years ago, we understand how to worship. We understand who Jesus is. We understand who we are. We understand what we need and how we should live by looking to the Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a great verse to memorize to remind ourselves of the power of the Word. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, are you worried? I get worried. Are you worried? Read the Word. Do you want to understand the times that you live in? Read the Word. Do you want to understand right from wrong? Not according to our culture, but according to God. Read the Word. Do you want to understand what to do with the weight and disgustingness of our own sin and to find new life and hope and grace and salvation? Read the Word and hear the good news of Jesus. Fourth and finally, how do we worship our response to threats? And again, this is a con- the, the situation is threat. Our response to threats is to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Our response to threats is to testify about the resurrection of Jesus. We're told here again and again the miracles, the healing, the the evangelism even, they are all by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through the name of Jesus. And so when we worship God, we begin with the reality that it is not about me. It is not about us. It is not about our abilities. It is about His power manifested in us. And so when we come to worship, we are very much saying, I give you all of the glory, God. I recognize that it's all about you, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of pushback, even in the face of difficult circumstances, we lift high the name of Jesus. Because we're not here to promote our name. Right? Acts continues to go back to this idea of the name of Jesus, that there's power and life in even just the name of Jesus. Sin, again, so easily goes, well, it's about the name of Ben. It's about my name. It's about what what I've done. No, 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 no. It's about the name of Jesus and what he is doing. Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, has the power to save the world. And therefore, we will not be silenced. We will not stop talking about Jesus. When anyone says, stop talking about Jesus, as we saw two weeks ago, the answer is, no. I can't, and I won't. And in the Bible says that after they prayed, after they lifted their voices to God, it says that the place was shaken. Can you imagine? Being there, they pray. It's not because their prayers are really, really cool, you know, they, they alliterated a lot and so God shook the place. God's power shakes where they have gathered. It is, in some sense, you could think of it as an aftershock of the arrival of the Holy Spirit who had just come and filled them in the last several weeks. And as we continue to see, without exception in the book of Acts, all the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to bravely, boldly speak the good news of the gospel ordinary, regular, average Joes and Jennies being filled with boldness today to talk about Jesus. And we're told that these are ways that our lives can be filled with the worship of Jesus. Amen? Number two, let's look at the the final portion of our passage here this morning. Number two is this, join in the work of of Jesus. We've looked at joining in the worship of Jesus and now the work of Jesus. And this is verses 32 through 37 that finish out this passage here. I want to reread these last several verses for us. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and we'll see him more and more, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, this final portion here of our passage, it is not an exhaustive list of every activity or action that it means under the sun to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but it is important to see... What are the marks that Luke, as the human author, wants to highlight for us when the worship of Jesus is profound? These are the types of things that the believers are now doing as they join in the work of Jesus, what Jesus is already doing. And three little sub points to tease out for us now, and I'm sorry, they're not alliterated. The first is this, the gospel of Jesus brings unity. The first half of verse 32 that the gospel of Jesus brings unity. Luke wants us to understand that all the believers, not just the pastor, not just the elders, uh, not just the, the super, super-duper fake celebrity Christians whose lives are always perfect and everything seems fine and we all get along great. No, no, no. Everybody, all of the believers are one. One says the full number of believers were unified with one heart and one soul. You hear that? How desperately does the church need that reality, need an extra dose of the gospel of Jesus? How desperately does our world need it and cannot and will not figure it out? Because unity comes from one source, knowing Jesus personally. That's it. Any other source will ultimately fail. Unity comes from knowing Jesus. And get this, the solution to unity in the church globally, the solution to to unity in this room, the solution to unity in the world is already here. We do not have to invent something new. We do not have to go out and find something new. It is not some new law, although laws are good. It is not some new system of government, although God gives us government as a blessing. It is not some new social plan. It is not doing better. It is not some sort of tagline. It is a person. Unity comes from Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of Ephesians chapter 2 is this amazing picture of the reality of the gospel and how Jesus saves spiritually dead sinners. But the second half of Ephesians 2, we usually sort of flutter past on our way to chapter 3, 4, and 5, and 6, but listen to Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Paul is telling us two very beautiful and important things. The first is that Jesus' death and resurrection brings reconciliation between guilty, rebellious people and a holy God. He has brought us together. We separated ourselves from God. Jesus' death has brought us together. But on top of that, Caught up in this amazing, glorious gift is that Jesus has brought together at least two radically different groups of people. In this case, Jews and Gentiles. How did they get along? Not great. How do the many groups of people in our world today tend to get along? Not great. I don't think I really understood the the profoundness and the beauty of what Ephesians 2 is inviting us into and telling us we already have in Jesus until everything that has unfolded in 2020 and 2021. As I look to the Scripture, I understand the power and the reality of the gospel. Jesus changed enemies into a family you see that? Because Jesus invites all of us into his forever family. Jesus himself, John chapter 17, he prays what's called the high priestly prayer. It's a massive chapter praying for God's people. And in particular, in verse 20 and 21, Jesus prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. He's just got done praying for people who are already believers. He's praying for more believers, talking to his Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In what way? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's Jesus' prayer for unity. Who's the source? Jesus. Who's the end? Jesus. Who's the power to make it happen? Jesus. How do we do it? Well, if Jesus can forgive me for the horrendous things that I have done, then I can forgive you for anything that you may have done to me, and vice versa. Guys, this does not mean that we will see eye to eye on everything, but using the Bible... We can discern the primary from the secondary issues. And so believers can very much, like in this passage, lift high the glorious saving name of Jesus as the Savior of sinners and the only hope for eternal life, and yet still disagree about the educational choice for their children. It's okay. We can disagree. We can go to the Word together and we can agree to disagree on that particular topic. We can agree to disagree on dunking versus sprinkling. We can agree to disagree it's okay. We can agree to disagree about which sinner to vote for. You understand how I led that statement? We can agree to disagree about which terrible person to vote into office because King Jesus is not running in 2024. He's already king. He's already won. Let me just step on everybody's toes. We can agree to disagree about the vaccination, okay? We can agree to disagree about secondary matters because the church in Christ is unified around one powerful reality, and his name is King Jesus. Well, if I want to learn more, where do I learn more? In the Scripture. Hear from God in the Scripture. Get this. Believers have already been made one in Christ, right? So as one people, as one people then, people of different races, people of different experiences, People from different parts of this country or, or another country. People who are older versus people who are younger. People who are richer versus people who are poorer. People who are conservative versus people who are progressive. They are all made one in Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It should astound us when this statement is made because if we go back just two chapters you remember Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we're told that 3,000 people became Christians all on the same day. The word was proclaimed and preached. 3,000 people say, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Do you remember the list of where those people came from? They didn't even speak the same language, and God does a miracle so that everybody can hear it in their own language. But listen to the list. See if you think these people got along. Acts chapter 2, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, members of Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Jews, converted Jews, Cretans, Arabians, all of one heart and of one soul. I promise they had some things to disagree about, but in Jesus there was unity. The work of Jesus is unity around the cross. Secondly, the gospel of Jesus, brings generosity. The gospel of Jesus brought unity, and now we see very clearly that the gospel of Jesus brings generosity. And this is verses 32, second half through 37. The Bible says very clearly, very simply, they shared everything that they had. This is not communism. This is not socialism. Communism is socialism by force. This is Christianity. Do not forget what the Bible calls us to be and to do, which is to be generous. To be clear, communism, simple definition, those in power say everything you have is ours. We'll take it from here. Christianity says everything I have is yours. As followers of Christ, everything I have is yours. Why? Because it wasn't mine to begin with. God gifted it to me, and so I'm passing it along as a gift to you as well. Acts 4 is a snapshot. It's actually the second time that we get a snapshot along these lines. The first is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, by which we pattern our city groups here at New City Church after, and Acts 2 says the believers were selling their possessions and giving the proceeds to any who had need. And along with that, they were studying God's Word, fellowshipping, doing hospitality, sharing needs, worshiping together, evangelizing, and new converts were coming to Christ daily. As Pastor Jim Moon told us last week, the gospel changes selfish hearts into generous hearts. And he read for us such a profound verse that I hope we see with a renewed light John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not have to do anything for us. He had every right, if you want to talk about rights. He had total justice, if we want to talk about justice, to let us all go to hell for our sins but God demonstrates his generosity towards us. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did for us what we needed before we ever could have asked or even imagined it. I heard people this week during shop and, sw- shop and swear. Yeah, shop and swear. We'll go with that. Next time we'll call it shop and swear. Come on in. If you're angry, just shop and swear. No, no. During share and swap, we'll just edit that part out of the sermon. During share and swap, I heard this question, hey, what kind of a church are you? It's a great question. Let me ask you, what kind of a church are we? What kind of a church are we? I understand what people mean when they ask that question, but here's the answer. We are a church that believes that the gospel is true. We are a church that believes that Jesus Christ has come to this earth to save sinners like me, and he can save you too. We are a church that believes that the word of God is true, and that when you open God's word, you see a message of God's love, that he came to save us, and we didn't deserve it, and that's how good his love is. That's the kind of church that we are. And by God's grace, we want to continue to live that out every day. And inevitably, we will stumble and we'll make incredible mistakes. But isn't that the message of the gospel in the first place? That Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived the perfect life, committed no sins, and then died on a cross that I deserved to hang on, to pay the penalty for my sins, he who had committed no sins. And in the greatest exchange of all time, not only did he pay for my sins, but he gifted me his perfect righteousness and record so that when God looks at me today, not by any merit of my own, but when God looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus." And so if I stand before heaven one day and God asks me, why should I let you into heaven? It will be for that reason. Jesus has done for me what I could never do myself. How do I get this free gift? Turn to Jesus. The Bible uses the word repent. Turn to Jesus and believe. And the result was that the stuff that the believers had, they no longer viewed as their own stuff, But they began to generously share what they had with others. See, when we experience God's unfathomable generosity, we stop viewing what we have as our own and we view it for what it really is God's gifts to us. It's not my house, it's God's house. It's not my kids, they're God's kids. It's not my money, it's God's money. It's not my time or my ability. It's God's time and God's ability. It's not my gifts. It's God's spiritual gifts to me. I'm so grateful for everyone who served at Share and Swap. And I loved hearing the conversations that were taking place. And fundamentally, the message to each person that we were interacting with was, you know, it it really is free. People ask, can we donate or does this cost or do we have to give something in order to get something? And in the most profound way possible, the answer from everyone was, no, it is free. Because why? Because we believe that God has been so amazingly generous to us to give us the free gift of His Son and salvation that we just want to get on board with that work. We want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, and if we can bless you in any small way by being generous and sharing with you what we have, then we want to do it. And most of all, most of all, we want you to know Jesus in that same way. That's the point. It's the same reason we serve with generosity here inside the church. Whether that be you give up your time to teach our kids and city kids who are out there right now and Brenda is teaching them and leading them. She's serving. She's giving generously of her time and her ability. Whether that be that you came and you led worship this morning or you're a part of our tech team or our welcome team or you came early and prayed or you're one of our city group leaders who opens up your home and shows hospitality and together we do discipleship together or all the intangible ways where you just show up and you say, how can I live generously because of God's generosity towards me? It is by God's grace. I'm grateful to you for it, and let us continue to do that together in unity by His generosity. And third and finally, that we would share the gospel, testify to the gospel with power. We saw this already, and interestingly, the passage ends with it again, that we are filled with grace and power to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. We get to share our testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives, bringing us from death to life. Not a one-time thing. Guys, Jesus still brings people from death to life every single day. The earth is shaken every single time. A dead heart is brought back to life by his grace and mercy and power. What kind of a church are we? That's the kind of church that we want to be. If God were to take a snapshot of us today, yes, we fail in so many ways, but that is the kind of church that we want to be. Let's be a church that shakes the world with the good news of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together.